I don't want to mess around here. And who was the top? Jay Abraham. Oh, of course. So Jay Abraham, for people don't know, is like the, he's still the guru uh, for all of us of marketing. So oh, one slight problem at that time, his seminar was five thousand dollars, which even today is a ton of money, right? It's so a I ton of money today, money. but back then, oh my god, it was like crazy. So I had one credit card that wasn't tapped out, and I I put the seminar on it, and mm-hmm. I went, and I just absorbed everything. I was the only voice talent in the room, and when I came back. I implemented, I locked myself in my my apartment and just did everything that he said to do. Welcome to the Innovative Founder, the show where entrepreneurs get real. real. These are the raw, the gut-wrenching, often hilarious, sometimes shocking, and definitely entertaining stories of innovative business founders who are making their beautiful dent in the world. No BS, no posturing, and no narcissists allowed. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the unscripted adventures on today's episode. Now, here's your hairless hosts, Bob Regneris and Brandon Boyd. Hello, innovative founders. How are all of you? It is so good to be with you today. I am flying solo because Brandon is flying in an airplane. As uh, as of today, the day we're recording, we had just come back from a very amazing video shoot in Boston, Massachusetts. Even though it was raining outside, it was sunny inside because we had some amazing conversations with some very amazing people from a company called Stansbury Research, a division of Agora. So, um, Brandon, we miss you and hope you uh, hope you have a safe flight. And today is just a really exciting day for me. I get to spend an hour with my friend, Susan Berkeley. She is the founder of The Great Voice Company. Susan and I have known each other for two decades. And as I mentioned on the show, we had an opportunity to get together in person for the first time in a long time at uh, Brian Kurtz's mastermind meeting. Susan is just an amazing human being. She wrote a book called Speak to Influence, How to Unlock the Hidden Power of Your Voice. She works with aspiring voice talent, people that want to use their voice as a hobby or a vocation. She works with entrepreneurs and business leaders, uh, helping them with their performance, speaking with confidence, being able to give amazing presentations. She's going to talk about that. Susan has been everywhere. She's been on ABC News. She's been on CNBC. She's uh, been quoted in the New York Times. Most famously, though, you have heard her before. For 20 years, she was the voice of AT&T. So whenever you used an AT&T service, uh, you heard Susan's voice. If you are a Citibank customer, you hear Susan's voice when you call into the company to hear your balance or to do a transaction. Susan is that person. Um, she gets in to uh, her stint on the Howard Stern show. Yes, the Howard Stern. Susan has been around. She is an amazing human being. She is full of energy and obviously has a fantastic voice, unlike uh, your current host of this program. But Susan is a, we we just had a great conversation. I think you're going to absolutely enjoy being with her today. And so without further ado, we'd like to introduce to you Susan Berkeley. 
Oh man, I am excited. I am with, I won't call it old friend because that would date us. Let's just call it a dear friend who I've known for a couple of decades. My friend, Susan Berkeley. Susan, how are you? I'm excellent, Bob. It's been that long. It's crazy. We have perfected our craft over time. We, we have. We have gained a lot of, of business and worldly experience in that time. Just can't wait to chat. Susan and I were at a, Brian Kurtz, held a mastermind about a month ago. And Susan and I haven't seen each other in person in a number of years. So it was just really good to walk up to a friend, client, a colleague, and just give her a hug. And that oh. was so sweet. It was just nice to connect with you again. Yeah. And you have so much joy. I think our listeners oh. are going to see that as they get to know you on this show. So how are you? What's exciting right now for Susan? I'm excellent because what's really exciting for us is when the pandemic hit, we started a book funnel. So just what we do here at The Great Voice Company is we're all things voice and presentation. So we have a large cohort of customers that want to get started in voiceover. And I wrote a book called Voiceover Secrets Exposed, which I started to sell at the beginning of the pandemic online. And mm. we figured out how to set, how to drive traffic on Facebook and YouTube. And I want to give a shout out to Sam Bark, who's our phenomenal uh, I know Sam. Sam, he's done a great job for us. So since the start of the pandemic, Bob, we've sold over 10,000 books. Awesome. And what that means, it's probably close to 11,000 right now. And what that means is we've added thousands and thousands of customers to our courses. And we have been teaching, I've always taught voiceover throughout my career, but, and I've even taught it virtually. But when the pandemic came, we got really good at it. So we added a full complement of courses and programs from that for them. And that allowed me to expand my business a lot. What I'm so excited about is I have a, a large virtual team of coaches and support people and audio engineers. And what's new for me is learning how to manage a virtual team and learning how to hire a five-star staff, which I've done. I love everybody that's in our team right now. And so do the customers. So I'm in the midst of a growing dynamic business, which is really satisfying. And what we're doing is now that we have all this know-how about how to do a book funnel, we're going to, we're going to repeat the same thing for persuasive speaking. Entrepreneurs uh, and people, anyone who really is tasked was speaking to lead. And so I've always done that. I've been a consultant for years and years for some top level people. We share some of the same clients, Bob, yeah. but I'm really going to go big with this now that we have the model and I'm going to, I'm going to duplicate it. What's not to love. I'm on fire. Super excited about what's possible. That's fantastic. So yeah. the great voice company, that's what you're known for. And I'm assuming you're helping people that have been told by family or friends, hey, you got a great voice. You should make a living doing it. And they do have no idea how to do it. Is that yeah, kind of so where you step group, in? That group of our customers, interestingly enough, are people on the runway to retirement. Now, I never would have thought this, mm -hmm. but we serve people. They're, they're 55 plus. They're either about to retire or recently retired. And they think that voiceover will be a really great, fun thing to do as a money hobby, as a second career in retirement. And so a lot of them are starting this journey before they, they it's time for them to exit their day job. But they're those folks and they're great. And 
So we teach them soup to nuts what to do. And I'm really known for my marketing expertise. You and I came from yeah. this pool of people. The, so the I, Dan Kennedy I, world. Yes, yes, sir. And <laughs> we built our businesses knowing how to market and understanding direct marketing. And so we know all that stuff. And so I've developed a method, which I call Mike to Money, how to Ooh. monetize your voice. And I've been teaching that for years. I've systematized it all. So I have programs and packages that they buy and where they learn those skills and they learn all, there's over 14 niche voiceover markets from audiobooks to e-learning. And they, I have special instructors that work with them and we do their demos and we do it all remotely. And it's really a great thing. Were you surprised when you set out to help people get in their own business that it was retirees? Like that, yeah, I imagine that was, that's amazing. Surprise. Yeah. So that's one of those things where you just never know who your market is until you by now, you think it's going to be one way. That's what's so fun about marketing. Yeah. And I came, I was a radio person. I was a DJ for years and years. I worked on the Howard Stern Show and many other places. And I am a voiceover artist. I'm the voice of Citibank. And, and I thought when I st- and we'll talk about that in a minute, but yeah. when I started, I always have coached people as a side gig. When you do voiceover, it's freelance work. So I thought, okay, let me at least take some students so that I have some additional income. That was way back when. And then I grew it into a formal school and coaching program, all the while continuing to do my own voiceover work. So yeah, it was a huge surprise. I thought maybe it'll be actors. Maybe it'll be other radio people when I started. But who really wanted this was was older folks, older people over 55. It's yeah, now that we're yeah. now that we're in that age band, we don't really say that, do we? <laughs> oh, I hate the word seniors. <laughs> no, yeah, we can't do that. That's terrible. We can't do that. But I am thankful for the ARP membership. It gets me really good hotel rates. So <laughs> when that first came, I was like, oh my like anyway. <laughs> you there must be some mistake. <laughs> it can't be me. I'm not that old yet, but it happens. But we're just seasoned. We're just seasoned and experienced. You look great, Bob. We're in great shape. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, let's figure out how you can even get to this point. Two two thriving businesses. Let's take you back. What was growing up for you? Where are you from? And what's been your foundation? I'm glad you asked that question because I have a kind of an unusual family. So I Oh, let's go. The weirder, the better. So my grandfather started Archie Comics. Okay, let's sit there. I'm, I hope a lot of people know what this is, but Archie Comics is one of the most famous comics of the 20th yeah. century, correct? Archie, Jughead, Betty, Veronica, Riverdale High, all that stuff. So my grandpa was a phenomenal entrepreneur. So he was wow. born in 1900 in New York City, son of Jewish immigrants, went to pharmacy school, law school, the depression, you just did whatever you could yeah. and started a publishing company with some partners And they just failed miserably. They sold Pulp Fiction at the time, like dime store novels. I guess they were like five cents at the time or whatever they were. And then around about 1940, um, he and his partner thought, like, why don't we do something for a comic book about the average American teenager? And they hired an artist, Bob Montana, who came up with the concept of Archie. And it happened to be just when all the troops were going over to Europe. And oh. of course, the original Betty and Veronica, and they still are today, were like pinup models. They were yeah. hot babes. They drew them like that. And so all the troops wanted those comics and oh. they just took off and start. It was one of those phenomena in businesses. But grandpa was an entrepreneur and he struggled. And then 
they hit it and they hit it big. And so I grew up in that environment. My dad went to work for the company out of college. And for a while, I actually wrote, I wrote a comic book called Katie Keene. It was a comic that had existed previously. It was cool. It was the story of a fashion model and her sister who moved to New York City and they were orphaned. And the thing about Katie Keene was that you could, if you were the reader, you could send in clothing ideas and the art for Katie to wear. Wow. And the artist would draw it on Katie and, and, and credit you. So you'd see oh. your name in the comic book, dress set in by Mary Smith of Chicago, Illinois. And it was all throughout the comics. So I wrote, I didn't do the original, I did the revision of that comic in the 80s for a few years. And I loved doing it, it just took a lot of time. I was working then and I couldn't stick with it. But so you didn't do the time. illustration, but you're doing the no, writing. I'm terrible at drawing everyone else. Okay. Ours, but I can't do that. <laughs> but I did the right of a big imagination. That, that was a lot of fun. But so I grew up in that milieu and over the in the summer, sometimes I'd go down to the office. It was in New York City and I'd and I'd answer the phones. And back then there was like a switchboard with oh, the where you'd like yeah. the, the pegs in. And I thought that was like I was a kid. That was so cool and so fun. And over Christmas, over Thanksgiving, Halloween, ah. give away comic books. So there there was a line around the block of local kids. We were the house that would give the comics away. And yeah, so it was quite, quite a crazy. What an environment to grow up in. It was. And my, all of us, like I have a brother and a couple of sisters in my, all of us are, have our own businesses. My brother is a phenomenal entrepreneur. He restores classic bug eye sprites. He makes millions. And my sister is a really successful artist. She's got her own business. My niece is an industrial designer with a very successful business. So we were all, we're all like steeped in that and without thinking about it. And it was, it's great. And it's so weird because it was by osmosis, Bob. Yeah. My grandfather and my father were not like, they didn't have, this is like, I don't want to date myself too much, but as I was coming up in the seventies, it was women's lib time. Yeah. So back then you wouldn't just, dads wouldn't look at their take their daughters under their wings. I think the way they do now, dads okay. are much more. And it just was unheard of. They looked at me, they didn't think, they, oh, you have a radio cute career. That's cute. But they never said, mm-hmm. you're going to be groomed to work in the company. They never did that. But somehow I was around that and I always wanted to work and I always wanted to have my own business. So all entrepreneurs and all creative too. You're in a creative, your create your creativity comes from your voice, but everybody's in a creative art. That's just amazing. So yeah, having I mean, that background and then that environment for entrepreneurship is just amazing. We I remember there were times when we were small, my father would bring home, they were in a rush. And so he'd bring home comic books and we would color them, the whole family. No way. Table. Yeah, because they were short stamped or something. They were in a Could you stay within the lines? Was that Barely, she could do my that? Sister and brother, my sister could. <laughs> she became a fine artist, but I was like, but he brought home the inks. This is pre-digital. And we're yeah, talking. of course. And I, I we would call I remember a few times doing that. It's crazy. But so you I guess you you grow up and you see your family going to work and having their own business and being successful at it. And you want the same, but it was just always understood that. I love to work. I couldn't wait to go to work. I didn't, I dropped, I'm not proud that I dropped out of college, but I couldn't wait to go to work when I was 19. And so I never what did stopped. You, all right. So what did, let's start there. You dropped out of college. What did you start with? Radio. So I, I love music and I love radio and I grew up 
in New York City, outside of New York City, where the rock radio was amazing. We're talking 60s and, and early 70s. And I just loved it. And so when I was in college, I worked on the college radio station, which was this teeny, I went to Kirkland College, which doesn't exist anymore, it was part of Hamilton, which is still there. It's in okay. Clinton, New York, very cold in the Mohawk Valley. <laughs> and yeah. I worked at the college radio station and it was a teeny tiny, it had five watts, it had a big plug under the desk. Five you, watts? What did that reach? Three uh, blocks? Oh, you could hear it five miles, maybe, or like a wow. mile. You know, it was tiny, but uh, it had a plug under the desk. And I remember if you hit it with your knee, you take the whole station off the air. <laughs> <laughs> but we were we were queuing records and playing them and I, it was so fun. And then I my boyfriend at the time was flunking out. And so I decided to spend a summer staying up there. He was going to summer school with him while he finished his papers and I needed a job. And I thought, OK, let me go into town, which was Utica, New York. There was a rock station and see if they need anybody. But I thought as a receptionist, never right. thought on the air. And they said, well, we don't need a receptionist, but we need a girl to be on the air because of equal opportunity requirements. I said, really? What? And they said, just go in the production studio, practice and make a tape. It was tape, all analog back then. Make a tape and then we'll listen in when we feel you're ready. We'll put you on the air. And that day came and they said, okay, you're going to start doing the midnight to 6 a.m. shift. Now, Bob, I had never stayed up all night before ever in my life. And I did the <laughs> coffee. So I thought, okay, I hope I don't fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the show. And back then you picked all your own music. It was heaven. Oh. But I have no recollection. I remember, I couldn't even tell you the name. I remember the first song. I remember the last, I know I didn't fall asleep, but it was a blur. And I have my like little peanut butter and jelly sandwich to eat for lunch at three in the morning. Oh man. <laughs> Did you know people were listening? Cause you like, yeah. So that was super fun because they would, there were people, there are people that depend on all night radio. Yeah. They're, they're working, working. The, shift, the hospital or whatever. And there was Rome air force base near there. So there were oh. all those guys listening. I had just developed a fan club up there I bet. working all night. And yeah. So that was always a thrill when listeners would, cause you could answer your own phones back then. And you could talk to the listeners and it, I just, it was phenomenal. So from there, of course, I wanted to get the heck out of Mohawk Valley. Uh, <laughs> Utica <laughs> wasn't the top for you. It was freezing, Bob. <laughs> I, and I'm working all night and I would, it was just so cold. You know this because you're from Chicago. And, oh, yes. And coming out at 11 p.m. to like go to the station and shipping like three inches of ice off your car and praying that you're going to drive down the hill and not skid. Was, yeah. And no light ever. I felt like I was in another world. But so then I saw there was a job opportunity in Florida. And I said, I'm yes. going to apply because I just, uh, there's no way I'll get, I'm just going to apply. And I did. And one day I got a call and hi, this is Mark Beltier. I'm the program director at WOUR in Sarasota. And we want to bring you down. We want to interview you. And I said, no. <laughs> and they flew me down there. I'd never been to Florida. And I got off the plane and drive across the skyway in sparkling waters and birds oh. of paradise. 
And I'm like, is this a real, am I in the I, same planet? And where am I? I'm so disorientated. What is that yellow thing in the sky? And I, and I got the gig and oh. I start, and what a leap because that radio station up Tampa, it's Tampa St. Pete. It was the 11th market oh. in the United States. So wow. now I had hundreds of thousands, if not a million listeners. And I was there for four years and loved living in Sarasota and on the beach. Oh. It was like a complete transformation and became well-known and really, that was when rock radio was really good. Yes. Consolidation yes. before they told everybody what everything was. Now everything's owned by iHeartRadio. It's owned by somebody. Yeah. 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 It was, it was an independently owned station. And we had, uh, yeah, I had pictures of me with Jimmy Buffett and Dickie Betts and Delaney and Bonnie, all of those. And these are for people of a certain age, you guys. Dickie Betts, yeah. all brothers. Delaney and Bonnie, <laughs> Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes. Yes. And I even introduced Fleetwood Mac at a concert in front of, I don't know, 40,000 people in Lakeland, Florida. I thought I would oh, die. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but anyway, from there, I, I said, okay, I'm in radio. Got to come to the Big Apple. I'm from New York. I got to go back home. I got to do it. And this is the disco era, right? It's 1979. And I said, I'm just going to go to New York. I'm not even going to apply because I, I'm going to stay with my parents and start auditioning for um, trying to get on the radio there. And at the same time, so that's what I did. I just moved back home. I said, this is temporary, guys. I'm, and at the same time, I met my first husband, who was a Brazilian rock star. <laughs> oh, okay. Not just a rock star, a Brazilian, Brazilian rock, star. rock star. So we met in New York City. My mom found, actually found me a, uh, a little apartment in, on 58th Street in the city. And in that same building, Sergio Diaz was staying. Now, Sergio... Is, and women know this, and especially if you're a young woman, a, 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 a guitar player, a rock guitar player is irresistible, right? So okay. it wasn't just me. And but one one who's Brazilian and Latin get it. I was that was it. So I met Sergio. We fell madly in love. We eloped to Rio. Oh my I went, goodness. I followed him back to Brazil. So I put my radio career on hold, right? Because I met this guy and I was going to go, I was a kid, I was in my early 20s. And so he had to go back to Brazil to uh, produce and promote a record. He's very well known. He was with a group called Mutant and in independent rock, they're well known. He really is the real deal. He's a phenomenal musician. So I went with him back to Brazil. We got married in Rio. My parents thought I was out of my mind. We oh. got married at a civil ceremony down there. My parents were like, we're not even coming. You're out of your oh. mind. You're like crazy. And um, it was his mother and a couple of friends that were witnesses. We're in the Palace of Justice. I didn't yet speak Portuguese. I was going to say, um, not speaking so. any Portuguese. <laughs> no, and we're there, but I'm good with languages, but I was, so I was learning. I had Spanish. I had French. We're in the Palace of Justice. It's finally our turn. The room is packed with old guys and young women <laughs> getting married. Oh, no. And we go up to this podium in the center of the room, and there's a justice, and he says something that sounded blah, blah, blah. And Sergio gives me the elbow and he goes, say, see, I said, see, and we're married. <laughs> see, <laughs> that's all it takes. It took, that's all it took. So we went back and I lived in, in Rio for about six months. And then he and I learned the language and he and I came back to New York. Marriage didn't last more than a couple of years. It was not meant to be. We're still friends. But then I met, I mean, I'm going on and on, can I? 
Oh, I imagine that you are having a great time listening to Susan. Her stories, some of them I have not heard before. What a, uh, just an amazing journey to where she is. What amazing confidence she had in herself to, you know, do things and make decisions and do things on the spur of the moment that were just very courageous and helped propel her to where she is now. So exciting to have her on the show. And uh, we want you to get her free book. Go to susanberkeley.com or greatvoice.com. She has resources there. So whether you're a voice talent or an entrepreneur or business leader that wants to be more confident in their speaking, Susan is the one to help you out with that. She is the real deal. She's out there doing it and she's teaching people, thousands and thousands of people, how to be more confident on camera, on the phone, on stage, wherever it is that you're speaking to an audience. So please avail yourself for those resources. Greatvoice.com, SusanBerkeley.com. Now back to the show. You're listening to The Innovative Founder. Now, back to your hosts, Bob Ricknaris and Brendan Boyd. You keep going. This is okay. so captivating, Susan. Keep <laughs> Thank going. you. So what happened, Bob, which was really fascinating. Sergio and I are living in New York in a tiny little apartment. And he has horrible panic attacks, really bad social anxiety disorder at the time, right? And to, to the point where you could barely go outside and you're a musician, you got a gig. Yeah. So I saw an advertisement for a Brazilian psychoanalyst named Dr. Kepi. And lo and behold, his clinic was on the same block where we lived. No way. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of those things. So I made a, an appointment for Sergio and for myself as well. He started the therapy. He hated it. We split up, but I loved it. And that was Dr. (laughs) Pepe, who now 40 years later is my mentor. And so I then that started a whole journey for me. And that really helped me get my head straight. So I went back after Sergio and I split up. I went back to my radio career, got back on the air in New York City Ended up at a lot of uh, work freelance, but for many stations and ended up at the Traffic Network and on the Howard Stern show. There you go. Most people know that. Yeah. Howard Stern. This is like 1987 and he's Stern is not national yet. He's about to go to Philadelphia and go on whatever he did at that point. His movie came out. But I'm on the show for two years and getting up at three in the morning, driving out to New Jersey to the traffic network, being on that show. And he, of course, incorporated me into the show, made me a character on that show. But it was, he called me Susan Berserkowitz. He, oh, you know, there you was, go. <laughs> some of the bits he did with me ended up in the FCC trial material. Oh, nice. So lewd and blue and embarrassing, but I got very famous. <laughs> But it was very hard. I I had a ball on one hand, but on the other hand, it was torture because it's not who I am. And I could have stayed with the show. I could have gone on. Whatever he did, he became national. He went online. He went on Sirius. But I just, I said, this really isn't for me. That's not how I want to do the No, he's really just being a character, right? Okay, he's a lovely man. He's the nicest guy. And I hung out with him a lot. Yeah. I'll go to parties, hang out with him really nice guy. And he always felt really bad to said to me, I'll tell you a funny story about, about Stern. So when I, the first day, so I actually put myself on his show. 
I was the I was the program director of the traffic network, which. Oh, meant, you, had, you, you had the authority to do it. I had the authority. And so that opening came up. The Stern Show needs a traffic reporter. All of my colleagues would have loved to. I didn't even let anyone audition. I just put myself <laughs> on the show. That was dark. But I did it. And so the first day on the air, and I'm like, oh, I got this. No problem. So we do the show. And he's they were just tearing me up. It was oh. horrible. And I was after the show. I called him because I had the hotline, right, to the studio. Yeah. And I said, I guess you guys really hated me. I guess I'm through, right? And he goes, we loved you. You were Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I guess this is how it's going to be. So I did this for two years and I was really conflicted. But so at that point afterwards, I said, okay, I'm just going to take a risk and go out on my own and quit radio and uh, do voiceover full time. Because then I'm independent. I can make a lot more money. Radio pays really poorly. It's a yes. business. And uh, I think the average uh, disc jockey probably makes $25,000 a year. It's that bad. Yeah, very if few, especially these days. But yeah, very few rise to the top to get yeah. seven-figure sales. Exactly. And, and yeah. I knew that wasn't going to be me. And like I said, I could have stayed with the Stern Show and probably done okay. But I said, no, I got to get out of this because it's just not me. So I said, I'm going to start my own voiceover business. And at the same time, I'm also going to take a few students on the side. And what happened was, so one day I was doing a voiceover with another guy, a voice talent who had been in the business a lot longer than I, quite by random. I couldn't figure out how to get work and I would only get random jobs here and there. And I was working all these day jobs, Bob. I was a waitress in New York City with all the other actors. Uh, I, I was uh, I was a telemarketer. I sold deodorant crystals to funeral homes. Oh, uh, goodness. And I worked for a singing telegram company called Renta Yenta. Can you believe it? Renta Yenta. Yeah, and it's New York City. And I was like, at least that's kind of artistic. And then one day it's July and they said, okay, Susan, we got a job for you today. And there's a costume. I said, okay, oh, we well, no. want you to dress up like a, a Christmas elf and sing an invitation to department store buyers on 7th Avenue for a fall fashion show. It's July. It's 100 degrees outside. So oh. here I am walking down 7th Avenue dressed like a Christmas elf. This is before Will Ferrell made it cool. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going muttering to myself like a homeless person. There's got to be a better way. Uh... There's got to be a better way. So soon after that, I meet this other voice talent and he's a lot more successful than I am because we finished the same. Because he's not dressed like an elf. No, he was not dressed like an elf. And we happened to randomly do a spot together. And after we finish, we go down to the street. He's getting into a beautiful Jaguar sedan. And I am fishing in my pocket for a subway token. I was broke, dead yeah. broke. So yeah. I said, Bob, what are you doing that I'm not doing? His name was Bob, too. He said, Susan, when I'm not recording voiceovers, I'm marketing. And he opened his laptop and he goes, see all these names? These are my prospects. And oh. then a light bulb went on over my head. And I said, okay, with voiceover, I can't, I have no control over getting, winning auditions and getting picked, but I do have control over learning sales and marketing. So what I did was I enrolled in a women business owners program, which was free at the time. And I started learning about marketing. And then I said, and you know what? I'm going right to the top because I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to mess around here. And who was the top? 
Jay Abraham. Oh, of course. So Jay Abraham, for people don't know, is like, the, he's still the guru for all of us of marketing. So oh, one slight problem at that time, his seminar was $5,000, which even today is a ton of money. It's so a I ton of money today, money. but back then, oh my God. It was like crazy. So I had one credit card that wasn't tapped out and I, I put the seminar on it and mm-hmm. I went and I just absorbed everything. I was the only voice talent in the room. And when I came back, I implemented, I locked myself in my apartment and just did everything that he said to do. And I, what happened was it started working. So I began booking jobs as a freelancer without having to audition because I understood direct marketing. I understood the sales cycle. I understood how to talk to people. I understood that it's marketing's never one and done. You need repeat contact. You need to understand the all the things we know as direct marketers yeah. that Jay taught. And I implemented it and it worked. So soon after that, I booked a job. I became the voice of AT&T. And that was huge for me. For There's got to be enough people on this call that have heard you. Just I mean, remind us what the, the tagline was. was. Like, Thank you for calling AT&T like that. At the yes. Time. I'm probably still embedded in their phone systems. So if you were like, living in the 80s or 90s, yeah, you, you heard years, it. I was that voice and yeah. heard by millions and millions of people every month because the call center was so big. And not only that, the lifetime value of that customer, Bob, was seven figures. Yeah. Had, had I known that, I would have bought... <laughs> The client a car. I knew yeah. nothing about lifetime value because the so first, so AT and T was just one of your prospects. Well, that you were yeah, that was, to. was I, actually I got it through an audition, and at that time, this was when interactive voice response was becoming a thing. So yeah. that's when you know you use the touch tones and to get what you want. And my my particular voice. See, there was a thing that women's voices would set off touch tones. There were harmonics in some women's voices that would set up touch tones and screw up the system. Mine didn't have that. So I I really did extremely well in the early days of interactive voice response phone prompts, which is now a completely different business than it was then. So I became the voice of AT&T. And then I said, I'm starting a company because if I, they were saying, do you know anybody that can record in Spanish? I said, I sure do. My company has and I have Spanish yes. talent, right? Yes. And then we started working, we started adding other languages, and all of a sudden I had a business, right? So I realized that it wasn't just selling me. I could also sell other voices as well and get up. Uh, and that became the business. And I hired my first employee and all of that stuff came out from under my little my little loft bed in New York City and eventually took office space in New York City. I didn't know you could negotiate an Elise. Uh. Yeah. And all of this was things were growing. And at the same time, I started teaching other boys talent and teaching them my method, my marketing method. And to this day, I hear from people, hey, you helped me get my start quite a lot. What I learned from you, I didn't learn from anybody because I don't think anybody teaches still to this day my marketing the way that we do. And I do. And always refining it and helping. Yeah. So the great voice company then uh, in time, I picked up, became the voice of Citibank. You want to hear that story? Yeah. How did that happen? I know it wasn't, I know what wasn't, it wasn't what people might think. Yeah. Yeah. So I am the voice and I'm still their signature voice. So if you are a Citibank customer, you call the bank. I'm the voice that says uh, your account balance is $4 million and 47 cents. Yeah. for calling Citibank. I must have done 
millions and millions of voice prompts for them, millions. And as I like to say, sometimes I think if I'm a bad girl, I go to hell. My voice will be saying, oh. time in hell is 437. The temperature in hell is 1 million degrees. Yeah, that's how many voice prompts I've done. So, so City, what happened, the way that I got that gig was interesting because now I knew about direct response marketing. So I wanted to be everywhere. So I was taking out ads in publications for the people that ran call centers were reading. And I was sending postcards and doing everything that, that we do in direct marketing using all the medium. Yeah, uh, Email was just coming in and a thing. Right. So I wanted to mix all of the medium. And one day I get a call from somebody over at City in, the, in their call center, one of uh, the managers there that was tasked with, they, want, they were re- redoing the thing. And they said, okay, we found you. We would like you to read some prompts for us and do a test job for us. And maybe I read a thousand voice prompts or something. Okay. And they said, this is great. And they put it up, they tested it and they loved it. And they kept coming back and back for more. And one day that co- client who became a dear friend of mine over the years, Dan Ratliff, he said, Susan, this is weighing heavy on me. I have a confession to make. I said, what's wrong? And he goes, when we hired you, we were actually looking for Susan Murphy. I said, Susan Murphy, Susan Murphy. I don't know if she still is at the time. She was a radio personality on Long Island and he confused the two names. Oh, wow. And one day she's going to hear this. I've told this story. She's going to hear this and say, hey, where's my cut? Oh, (laughs) sorry, Susan. It was serendipity. So now, of course, I did a great job for them. This is 25 years ago, and now I'm still their customer. It's still there. Yeah, it's still there. But that's how I got that gig. And I believe there are no accidents. There are no accidents. And you're meant what you're meant to do. And I hope she's doing great and thriving. But um, I'm sure she is. But what happened, I did the same thing. So we then, City now wanted to record in all languages. And so we... Mm. Did that. By then, I have audio engineers working for me. I have sales staff, and we're serving the interactive voice response industry, which in the 90s was really going, and even until quite recently. And we started advertising on Google. I think wow. maybe when you and I were working together, I, I forget what we were doing exactly together, but I think it was like 06 when we first started yeah, working together. Yeah. So uh, we were going very strong. We had a really good thing going with Google until they changed the algorithms and that whole flow of customers dried up. And then, of course, right now, there's a lot of automation, a lot of AI, interactive stuff that you can't compete with as a company. And I must say, I did did my share of those. Like IBM once hired me and I did, I am the voice of of an IBM speech engine. Okay, you're in there somewhere. You're in the AI. Somewhere. So I sold out my voice for brothers and sisters. Don't hate me if any are listening. Uh, I did what I had to do. But yes, yeah, so that's how the business, that's in a, that's the short story about how the business, the long story about how the business grew and became what it is today. I think the one thing that jumps out to me, Susan, is there's a hinge of like naivety. You didn't know what you didn't know and you didn't know it. But you were just moving forward with some sort of unconscious or maybe conscious belief like, oh, this will work out. You were just doing the work. Uh, The fact that you 
put $5,000 on a credit card is akin to burning the ships when you land on the island. We're not going back. This has got to work. I don't think a lot of people have that gumption, to be honest. I, I don't know if people would bet on themselves like that. Yeah. And I did not for one second did I. My dad would have helped me, but I never, ever, that would have been shameful for me to go back home and go to him and ask for money. I just never, ever did that. And which is different from how young people think today, which is a shame. I just, yeah. to me, it was a more, I would be mortified to not be able to say that I did this on my own. You so, needed, you needed that investment to pay off. <laughs> yeah, I needed you know. it to pay off. And I, and I did. And, and I guess the other thing I'm hearing is Obviously, you have talent, you have your own intellect and creativity, but you said you just you like, OK, I heard what Jay told me and I did it like that. That is just so many people want to be like, OK, yeah, I'm going to go take a little bit from this plate, a little bit from this plate. <laughs> they end up like lifelong learners and never implement anything. And I think it's so amazing. No, I'm going to I'm going to make this thing work. And I think the other thing that I mean, for you to say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play around here. I'm just going to go to the guy or the person that I know that is going to get me to where I need to go. And, and you, it's a big jump. And I'm not the only one now that did that because he's working with Dave and John from Shark Tank. Yeah, of course. Jay is still phenomenal. I met him again. I've met him recently. And we like, he always says, you and I go way back. I'm like, don't rub it in, dude. Don't rub it in. (laughs) But he's, but he is, he's the real deal. And from him, I went on to study with Dan Kennedy. I really went, I'm that kind of person was when I start something, I really do stick with it. I just, when I was in GKIC all those years, I became a pri. And actually I started at the top with Dan too. I became his private client first. I joined his VIP mastermind. First, so I paid. Yeah. I went started at the top, and Robert Scrove was in that group, and a bunch of other people that went on to like huge success. And yep. so it's really, I don't know, it's just how I, how I, I guess how I'm wired. Yeah, and I think I think what it comes down to, Susan, is you had a faith in yourself. Yeah. I think, and that's uh, that's missing for a lot of people. Is that like you you really believe that? Hey, I'm going to get it done. Now, maybe that was something that you just learned growing up in an environment of entrepreneurship where it's like, oh, this is normal for you to like try things and bet on yourself. You said your grandfather had some failures and oh, yeah. you know, didn't really oh, hit on but, something. Uh, I want to say something, too. But remember, I was talking about meeting the Brazilian psychoanalyst, Dr. Kepi. Yeah. So all through I've known Dr. Kepi for 40 years and I've had to do a lot of work on my own resistance to success, a mm. problem Kepi calls uh, envy, which is not, I want your car, I want, you know, what you have. It's no, we, Kepi discovered and we fundamentally oppose our talents and our gifts, all of us. And we are self-sabotage waiting to happen. Yeah. And what we're not talking about here is I had many horrible moments in my yeah, yeah. through employees and bad stuff happening. And, um, but throughout analyzing it and staying in touch with that, but also Bob, I know you're a person of faith. So am I in the sense that we have, it's, we were given gifts and it's yeah. very serious. If we don't maximize them, if we don't in service of others, not for ourselves, our gifts, our talents are not for ourselves. I tell this to my students all mm. the time, my voiceover students, because they're talented. They're talented. I say, look, your gifts, and this is from Kepi, your gifts are not for your own aggrandizement. 
They're to glorify the creator. They're to they're right. for others. And so it's, that's, I think, yeah, I might have a certain amount of inherent grit, but I yeah. also, I also have a lot of guilt. It's, it's a level of awakeness. And just to complete that circle, Yes, you. So you use your gifts and talents to glorify others. In turn, it adds glory others. back to yourself. But to help others, not to glorify others. To glorify well, the, the Creator who yeah. gave us the gift. And, but I, yeah, in turn, the you essentially get to receive the benefit of that, and that's I think that closes the circle there. Yeah, but we all do, and then every all the all boats rise. I guess is an easy way to say it. But so that I think. Yeah, I might have grit, but I also have a phenomenal psychoanalyst in my back pocket. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And now if I can fast forward a little bit before we run out of time, what we're doing and what I'm really stoked about, because you asked me what I'm on fire about, is I'm bringing that knowledge to my students, Kepi's knowledge, and they're loving it. So we're running a program we call the Confidence Project for them. And Love it. their study, I have friends in Brazil. Kevin's got a university in Brazil. I'm, I'm going there this weekend. I'll be there for three weeks. I go twice a year and I teach when I'm there. Oh. I'm an adjunct professor. I teach remotely and I'm developing a whole thing on communication. And no one has ever gotten to the root of why people are afraid of public speaking. But Kevin mm-hmm. has. <gasps> Since the time of Demosthenes in ancient Greece, people were terrified of public speaking and nobody ever has really come up with a definitive cure for it. But that's that I think I was telling you about that second book funnel at the rest of my life, developing that, sharing that, helping people with that, helping young people, helping non-native speakers, people come into this country that want to feel so uptight about their ability to speak and to wonderful. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that for me is a bigger vision, a bigger goal. And uh, you really shouldn't be fearing public speaking over death. (laughs) It's crazy. So if I had, do I have a minute to talk? Yeah. About it? Yeah. So what I've noticed and my colleagues in Brazil have noticed as we are developing this, I have other folks that are working closely with me in this and in Dr. Kepi's work. So the person that is terrified of public speaking is really, they're a perfectionist and they're a little bit of a narcissist as well, Bob, a narcissist mm. in the sense that when they get up to speak and when they go to communicate, their focus is on themselves rather than on the other person. So all of us, anyone who speaks and does it well, has had the experience that the cure for public speaking is actually getting yourself to the point where you take the focus off yourself and you're like, hey, look, this is for the audience. This is for my viewer. And I do this when I work with my entrepreneurs. I work with Agora, the Agora companies and Stansberry and people like that. I'm like, hey, you need to have your avatar. We're on video right now, but there's somebody on the other side who needs what you're saying. So this is not about you. At a certain point, of course you prep, you make sure you're you're speaking as cogent, you're making points, you've got examples, you're entertaining and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's not how we look and whether we make a little mistake here or there. They're not, they don't care. It's about them. How can I uplift them? How can I clarify something? And so that's the great secret. And that's when I say nervous speakers are narcissists, it's because they're locked in their own head. What if I make a mistake? What if I get sick mm. of myself? What if I fail? What if, oh, everyone's looking at me? What if I'm judged? What if I draw a blank? See what I'm saying? Yes. So it's that I, me, and everyone does this, and I'm saying this with love, not with, it's something that when, and what we've found is that when people become aware of that, 
they start to relax, they start to calm down, they start to get back in touch with their inner life and not be so exteriorized and externalized. And then they have that center that really you can influ- you influence from that center. You radiate energy from that that's very magnetic when it's directed towards other people. And it's not that you're all, you have to be all polished and perfect. In fact, that's now a lie. It's actually a liability because people smile at, smell it a mile away. You know, it was really cool to talk with Susan about the uh, the effect of, of being too polished, of being overproduced. And I, I know I mentioned on the show about how we want to produce really quality video for clients, but we don't want it to be overproduced. Uh, one of the things we like to say at Feed Stories is ditch the script. We feel that overproduction, uh, whether visually or auditory, is is a way to lower trust. When we put our clients on camera, we want to reveal their authentic selves. Uh, we don't want to put a, a overly rehearsed fake version of somebody on. Um, so when you see us work with a client, what we're trying to do is get that individual to a point where they're comfortable on camera, where they're confident, and they could talk about what it is they do, the problem they solve, their mission to the world. So if if you felt a sense of relief that, hey, I don't need to perform, I don't, know, I don't need to be an actor, I do not need to be a polished speaker, you would be a great candidate for Feed Stories. So we'd love to uh, chat with you. Come on over to feedstories.com and uh, request a session with us and we'll talk through that. Uh, we'd also like to make sure that you are aware of our brand new ultimate guide for using video to create and build trust and create customers for life is available at ultimatevideoguide.com. That's ultimatevideoguide.com. Now back to the show. You're listening to The Innovative Founder. Now, back to your hosts, Bob Rickneris and Brendan Boyd. Oh, we say that all the time at Feed Stories, like overproduction and perfection is lowers trust. The fact that you stumble sometimes, the fact that maybe your hair's a little out of place, like slight imperfections actually humanize you and increase trust. So your job is not to put together the perfect presentation. It's to put together a, a truthful presentation and just represent yourself really well. Now, you'll teach them to perform well, to speak yeah. so that yeah, people rules. aren't tripped up by the performance or things like that, right? But job one is you got to have affection for the audience. You have to care yeah. about them. Yeah. And that's what shares signs through. So what does it mean to care about an audience? Well, it means to be as clear as possible in the sense that they don't have to struggle to understand what you're saying, that you make a point and you give a lot of examples, that you're not getting showing up, trying to be the encyclopedia on the subject. That is for writing, speaking, that yes. you really are utilizing everything we have as we're artists when we speak. So you have your body, you have everything yeah. that's part of our artistry and that that brings this alive. Even if you can't draw, you can still be an artist. <laughs> <You're sick. laughs> well, it's great. I would be remiss to not like allow you and ask you to share those resources because there's a lot of people that need what you have. So if you could just share that and where they could go find that information, that would be fantastic. Oh, Bob, thank you for doing that. So I think the best place to go right now. Cause like I was saying, we're developing that part of the business. I'll give you a few things. So the, the, I've got a, a, I'll happily send a free copy of my book, the persuasion code to any of our podcast listeners today. 
And you just go to susanberkeley.com and you can sign up for that there. And Berkeley is spelled B-E-R-K-L-E-Y, Susan, B-E-R-K-L-E-Y. Our website is greatvoice.com for the Great Voice Company. You see our phone numbers there. You can give us a call. And You're serving people who are aspiring to use their voice as a way to hobby or vocation. And then also speakers, anyone who has to give presentations virtual or live to help them with their performance and the production of what they do. Yeah. And to be more magnetic, more influential, better leader through your speaking and be more comfortable in your own yeah. skin as a presenter. Well, you used a term having affection for the audience. That was really beautiful. I hadn't heard anyone say it in that way, yeah. but that really makes a difference. And it gave me a nice visual and a nice kind of like whenever I'm speaking, like having affection for the audience that's listening or watching. That's just a really beautiful picture. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, you're very welcome. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you 60 seconds here. And what we do in this is you get to rant about something. Now it could be a positive rant. It could be a negative rant, whatever you want to do, but it just gives a little insight as to what do you want to just let people inside of Susan a little bit. So I, I'm not going to give you any other any parameters. Yeah. We like to surprise you with it. Yeah. Let me think of a couple of, I'll give a, I'll give a rant right now on this one. Okay. So not so long ago, I heard Russell Brunson, the great internet marketer say, you know what? A lot of people go into internet marketing, so they don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> they would much rather hide behind an email. What I have to say to that is you guys are nuts. Do you realize you are cutting yourself off from a huge source of influence and prosperity, which is your voice? So famous studies were done. Words are 7% of our message. Only 7%. Your voice carries your energy. It is the organ of the soul, to quote the poet Wadsworth. To give those folks a break, the reason is they're so terrified of contact with other people as if it's going to take something away from them, as if they can't handle the nervousness, the stress mm. they feel. But as I was saying a few minutes ago, you know, what you're really doing is you're refusing a, a whole source of growth. You're unconsciously putting, refusing a whole source of joy, affection, of all of that. So what I want to say is, <laughs> come out from behind your, your computer, pick up the phone, go on Zoom, talk to people. It's okay. It's going to be huge for your business. And if you're scared still, you got to get a hold of Susan. She will help you. Yeah, but you're always place. scared. You, it might never get better. So what? Who cares what you feel like? It doesn't show. And even if you're a little nervous, like you were saying, Bob, doesn't matter. It's part of your charm. It's part and of it who you are. Better. It does get better. Susan. So good to be with you today. Thank you for those stories. They were captivating. I learned things about you that I didn't know. And I have a greater appreciation for you. Thanks for sharing some of those things. Really amazing stuff. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Innovative Founder with Bob Regneris and Brandon Boyd. A show featuring the real stories of entrepreneurs making their beautiful dent in the world. If you like the show, let us know by leaving a rating. If you're an innovative business founder yourself with a story to tell, then you might just be our next guest. Reach out to us on InnovativeFounder.com and tell us your story. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on The Innovative Founder.